very difficult passage, actually. Mark chapter 10, verses 42 uh, through 48. And uh, Gray is preaching on, let the little children come to me uh, this morning in Chandler. I mean, how easy is that, right? Let the little children come to me. Mine is about hell and sin and cutting out your eye and cutting off your hand. Thank you. Let's pray, and then we'll read our passage together. Father, we thank you and praise you for Christ. We thank you for the chance just to gather as a local congregation this morning, just to lift up your name and to sing songs uh, with brothers and sisters, um, to hear your word, to make new relationships, to join in the story of the gospel and liturgy, to eat at your table, to receive a blessing. What a gift it is. And Lord, our, our lives are so incredibly complex. Every single one of us walks in this door today with a myriad of issues, concerns, burdens, joys, celebrations. And I just pray that you would meet us here, right here in the midst of it all, in the stress and the strain and the hopes the dreams. Would you be here among us? Spirit, come. We pray. We need you. In Jesus' good name. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 10, verses 42 uh, through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were to be thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. With a worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Jesus gives us these four incredibly graphic examples and says that it would be better to have these things happen to us than for us to miss the kingdom of God and to spend eternity separated from God in hell. It's better. These four things, they're so graphic, and he's saying it would be better if these things happened to you. And Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were, uh, were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. And by little ones, it'd be better if you caused one of these little ones to stumble. And just before, in the context, uh, just earlier in, in Mark, he's in Capernaum with his disciples, and he gathered little children, and, and he's, he had a child come and sit in his lap as he's speaking to them. And so he may have this child in mind as he's speaking, actually. But even more so, probably what he's saying is the children of God, and not just literal children, even though this word literally means children, he means probably spiritual children. 
And the greater warning, because in the second half of Mark, uh, what's happening is the first half of Mark is sort of Jesus staying in Capernaum and the, and the, the village in which he lived and did ministry. And he and his disciples kind of lived there. And they, that was sort of their home base. And they would go on missionary journeys and head out to different places. But they mainly lived there. But on the second half of Mark, they're starting to march towards Jerusalem, which, of course, is a march towards the cross. And meanwhile, all the heat is heating up in terms of the persecution that is happening from the Pharisees. And that's what's happening is, I believe Jesus has in mind this warning, especially these religious leaders, pastors like me, warning, woe to you if you cause one of these little ones to sin. And the word cause to sin is the word in Greek, scandalizo. What's that sound like in English? Obviously scandal, right? And it literally means to lay an obstacle that, that causes someone to stumble. And so I want you to think about like uh, a scandal in the church in particular. There's political scandals, there's business scandals, there's all kinds of scandals. But particularly in the church, and the older you are and the more you've been in church, chances are very good that you have personally been involved or seen and observed a, a scandal. Somebody uh, who's in leadership, a church, a priest, a pastor, a bishop... Who, who falls into sin or tempts others to sin. And, and, and Jesus is warning those of us in any kind of spiritual leadership uh, or even just mature Christians that people look to, be careful. It would be better for you to have this huge weight around your neck than to trip somebody, because that's kind of what it's like. Like A scandal is like laying in wait and then tripping somebody as they walk by because it causes people to fall and to stumble. Back in that day, a millstone, like we hear all these biblical terms and so forth, and we, they kind of just go like this, but a millstone was this enormous stone that they would use to crush grain to make bread, right? And, and they had these things called donkey millstones, and that's what Jesus is referring to. It's like this millstone, this piece, this, this stone that is so large that have to be turned by a donkey just walking around in circles and pulling the stone to crush the grain to make the flour to make bread. And Jesus says this enormous stone that would weigh hundreds of pounds, it would be better for you to have that to be tied around your neck and for you to be thrown in the sea, of course, which means to drown instantly than to cause one of these little ones to stumble and to sin. Really? That's better? And Jesus says, yes, that's better. And the main point I want us to see today, it's, you get a one-point sermon, but there's a lot of detail. <laughs> this passage is showing us how serious sin is, how wonderful God's kingdom is. It's not to be missed. And how horrible hell is. How serious sin is, but how amazing God's kingdom is. And how horrible hell is. And in this story, sin is the main thing Jesus is implying that would keep us from entering the kingdom of God and, and, and receiving eternal life. But ultimately, the ultimate sin, and it's really the only thing that can keep you, this is the unpardonable sin, is unbelief in the one that, that the Father has sent. And so I, I don't want anyone leaving here today thinking, like, if I have any sin in my life, or if there's any sin tainting me whatsoever, then I will not enter the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying, ultimately. But, but he's using this graphic imagery and warning about sin. And according to Jesus, life is so good, the kingdom of God, that he is about to, you know, he is, 
He is ushering in, even in his physical presence there, but ultimately the kingdom of God that he will bring in its fullness and consummation at the end of the age when he returns is so good and hell is so bad that it would be better to take sin so seriously in your life that if your hand was literally the cause of your sin, it would be better to cut it off. And if your foot was actually the cause of your sin, better to cut it off. And if your eye could really be the thing that was causing you to sin, better to gouge it out. Now, if you've been around church, if you've ever been in a Bible study studying this passage, if you've ever, ever, ever done any conversation around this passage, the immediate defense is this. Well, clearly, Jesus did not mean to cut off our hands, cut off our foot, or gouge out our eyes, or every single Christian would be lame and blind right. Obviously, yes, that's right. Clearly, this has got to be hyperbole, right? Yes, yes. An exaggeration used for effect. Yes, that's right, that's right. Because you can gouge out one eye and lust with the other, right? And you can cut off one hand and steal with the other, and you cut off another leg and and do whatever you're going to do with your foot. But Jesus has taught us, ultimately in in Mark 7, that it's not our hands, our feet, our eye that cause us to sin. It's not what you eat. It's not what you touch. It's not outside of you that's your big problem. It's your heart. Mark 7. Jesus has already clearly taught us this. So our problem in the, in the world, it's, it's not outside. It's not in Washington. You'd like to believe that. It's not in, in the other political party that, that you don't agree with. It's not in, in people that you don't agree with in society about their sexuality or whatever the issue is. Sin is not only over there, although it is. It's also right in here. It's not just at the public school. It's not just in that other denomination. It's not just wherever. It's, it's right here in you, in your own home. It's our heart. And so, yes, this is hyperbole. And in spite of it being hyperbolic, it's not meant to lessen the warning. And the bottom line is we shouldn't be cavalier about sin in our life or the temptations that we're facing to give ourselves over to it. And this is true of all of us. Whether you've just begun to follow Jesus, and literally it's been six weeks, or whether you've been following Jesus for 60 years, every single one of us battles temptation. Every one of us. We shouldn't be cavalier about sin. Jesus is saying, it would be better to cut off your hand, cut off your foot, gouge out your eye. So we shouldn't be cavalier about it, but what is sin? Generally, we're going to speak in generality today. Generally, sin is the desire to build your life apart from God. I want you to think about it that way. And of course, there's all kinds of specific sins. And we, we have a tendency to be like, hey, I want, I want to know the specifics. So is that a sin? Is that a sin? Is that a sin? And yes, that's important. And you can read the scriptures and talk to other Christians to get like a reading on what God's will is about particular issues. But the reality is the most important thing is for you to understand that in general, the trajectory of our heart and our life is to build our lives independent from God, apart from God, and to say, I will go my own way. That literally is the original sin if you study it in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve say, thank you very much. There's only one law. Don't eat that. And they can't. 
<laughs> they can't keep from doing it. And it's them saying, we will be our own Lord and Savior. We will define what's good. We will define what's right. And that's what's happening in our own hearts in any particular issue. I'll be my own Lord and Savior when it comes to my marriage. I'll be my own Lord and Savior when it comes to my sex life, what I view about sexuality, what I believe about money, what I believe about power, what I believe about all the stuff in my life. Building our lives apart from God. We have this phrase today, and it's at kind of the heart of like where are all of our hearts are. It's a good phrase to summarize the human heart in a reality. It's, it's my truth. We speak my truth. I have to speak my truth. I want to tell you about my truth. And you know what? Part of that I get, I want to give a little grace here. Part of that just means let me tell you my story. And if that's all you mean by that, then I'm totally cool with it. But also behind it seems to be the sense of like, there's my truth, but there's ultimately, what about the truth, right? And so for the heart of the Christian, we need to be in a place where we say, it's not so much about my individual truth. Your story is important, but we're not seeking your truth. We're seeking what, what is God's truth. But what about grace? I mean, the thing about New Valley, <laughs> the thing that we have on repeat that we talk about in every single sermon is this. We are not made right with God on the basis of our own righteousness. That we are not forgiven because we're good and righteous. We're forgiven and made right with God because Jesus is good and Jesus is righteous. We don't earn salvation. We could not do that. It's all about Christ. It's all about his faithfulness. It's not about mine. And so it's all about grace. So what about grace? How can we receive this dire warning and this church still believe that it's all ultimately about grace? And I think the takeaway here is, yes, this does not undermine grace, but be warned of a theology that is pervasive in our culture and this idea in our culture today, which I call cheap grace which is this idea that, like, I don't need Jesus as my Lord. I've got him as my Savior. He's forgiven me of all my sin. I can kind of live however I want now. I, I'm still a, the captain of my soul, still the pilot of my soul, but that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that he becomes not only our, our Savior, but our Lord. Paul had an issue with this in his own day. He, he brings it up in Romans chapter 6, where he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound or increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And what's interesting to me about Paul is like he's in a real argument with himself in Romans. Like he goes back and forth going like, I've died to sin. I'm no longer a slave to sin. It's no longer a master over me. But then in Romans 7, he says, why do I keep doing the very thing I hate? You know, woe is me. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we are fully accepted. We are fully brought into the kingdom. But friends, then we say to ourselves, I want to die to this self-willed life and selfishness. And I want to live more and more into what it means to follow Jesus. And here's why. Because there's blessing in that. There's blessing. The other night... I was watching uh, the candidates debate for the Democratic Party, and I kind of had it on in the background because we've been re remodeling our house, and I was working on the bathroom, and it was kind of the final thing, and I'm, I'm there, and, I, and I've got this thing going on, and I hear a commercial that's been repeated several times throughout the night, and it was a commercial for a foundation called the Freedom from Religion Foundation. 
So not the freedom for religion, but the freedom from religion. And the spokesperson was Ron Reagan. And not, not President Ronald Reagan, but his son. And the president's uh, son says, irreverently, I'm a lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. That's his tagline at the end. That's pretty intense. Ron Reagan, I'm a lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. And he's really implying that it's silly to believe in God of any sort whatsoever, A. And B, that the world's religions have done great harm. We know he's not wrong in that. But third, that there's, it's absolutely ridiculous to believe in a thing like hell. Now, did Jesus really believe in hell? That's a great question. Did he teach about it? Did he talk about it? Was that even a subject that he mentions? And the, the short answer is yes. In fact, it, it's in our text today. And interestingly, though, I want you to think about it this way. Jesus spoke about hell to religious people, and he talked about grace and mercy and the love of God to the sinners of the world, interestingly. Those who had been cast out and marginalized spiritually, he would talk about grace and mercy and how close they were to the kingdom of God. And to people like me, pastors and religious leaders, and hopefully not people like me in my heart, but people who were the, the shepherds of Israel, he would warn them of hell. And Jesus spoke about it often, and in this passage he warns about it, and there's a few things we learn uh, from it. First is this, it's better to be maimed in this life than to go there. That's what he says. And second, it's like a place where worms don't die and the fire is never quenched. The word used for hell in this passage is Gehenna, which is, was a literal place in, in, outside of Jerusalem. So he's, he's referring to this, this literal place south of Jerusalem, and it was a common metaphor for hell in their culture. And it had been a place of pagan worship and human sacrifice, and Josiah made it a garbage dump, a place for the burning of animal entrails, garbage, and waste. And at a burning garbage dump, I just want you to like get the imagery, and it's gross, but it's like, that's why it, there, there's worms, this imagery of worms, maggots, right? Disgusting garbage, animal waste, and entrails, and so forth. And they're burning the garbage constantly. It's like a place where the fire is never quenched, right? This literal place that he's referring to. Now, in Tim Keller's great book, The Reason for God, I just mentioned it earlier, he deals with some of the toughest questions that people have about the Christian faith. I, I just can't commend it enough. If you're a believer, it will strengthen your faith. If you're trying to investigate Christianity, uh, it, it, it helps you think through a lot of these issues. And he writes about the biblical picture of hell in his book, and he says this. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed all love, wisdom, or good thing of any sort. And since we were originally created for God's immediate presence, only before his face will we thrive, flourish, and achieve our highest potential. If we were to lose his presence totally, that would be hell. The loss of our capability for giving or receiving love or joy. Now, ask the question, what if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends on into eternity? Hell then, he writes, is the trajectory of a soul 
living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. They continue to go to pieces, forever blaming everyone but themselves. One of Tim Keller's greatest influences, and one of mine as well, is a, was a man, C.S. Lewis, that most of you know, a great author in like multiple directions, an atheist who became a Christian. And he wrote in his great book, The Great Divorce, <laughs> there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. And without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, open. And Lewis had this idea that we're all on a trajectory, and you see it in your heart. You're either becoming, he said, a creature that is fit for heaven in the kingdom of God. Someone to whom would gladly enter God's presence and say, Thy will be done. I'm tired of my selfish living. I want you to define my reality. I want to spend eternity living according to your plan and not my own, right? There are people, we're all on a trajectory either to get to that place or the opposite where we are the kind of person that says, no, I would never bow my knee to yours or anyone else's will. My will be done. My will must be done. Which trajectory are you on? We must consider this dire warning that Jesus has and ask ourselves, what do we do in light of this? What are we to do with all this? And the first thing I want us to see is this. We have to deal with our hearts. And this isn't like, hey, today, this is what we should do. Or for the next month or 30 days. This literally is what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian at all. It's to live a life of introspection about our hearts. What do my actions tell me about my heart? What does all my fear tell me about my heart? Why am I so anxious? And you know, there's a lot going on there. It's not, it's not simply a spiritual emotion issue. There's, it's a physical issue, too. It's our bodies as well. But like, as we think about it spiritually, what does our heart tell us? What are our actions telling us about our heart? What is my heart telling me when tempted? And we are all tempted. We're tempted to believe that God's will for our life is not good. And that whatever is tempting us is better than what God is offering us. And so it really doesn't matter what particular issue you're wrestling with. At the end of the day, it's all kind of the same. It gets to the point where you say, I'm tempted to believe that God's will and desire for my life is actually not good. And that my will, my desire, or whatever temptation I'm struggling with is going to be better than what God is offering me. Paul just told us in Romans 6 that we must put sin to death. And older Christians call that the mortification of sin, the, the, the killing of sin. And there's a positive side to this and there's a negative side. But the truth is, without the positive side, the negative side will have no actual power or impact. What is the positive side of putting sin to death? The positive side is this, is Christian, for you be, to begin to see more and more 
that God is good. And for us to see that I don't just want Jesus uh, for what he can do for me. I want him as the end and the goal, as, as the ultimate purpose. I want God for himself. That God is glorious. We know that. I mean, that's a biblical term, right? And that God is beautiful. And that everything I'm tempted by can only be, actually find its completion in God. If you're tempted by pleasure, there's, there's no more pleasurable thing in the universe than the one who created the universe. If you're tempted by love, if you're tempted, whatever it is, we find our soul satisfaction ultimately in him. So the positive side of battling these temptations and sin in our life, and that's all of us, is not just to say no, but to say yes to God. Yes to who he is. Yes to his life. Yes to finding ourselves more and more enraptured by his glory. We're a part of a, a larger denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America, and we have these books, these old books, that go back to like the 1500s, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism. The first question in our catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? And, and the, the real question is this, what is the purpose of humanity? And it's, what's, class, what's the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's it. We spend so much time saying, no, it's about saying no to this and saying no to this. No, until you're saying yes to this, saying no to that will have very little power. So there's the positive side. And of course, there's the negative side. Which involves seeing and convincing yourself of sin's ugliness and the destruction that it will bring in your life. And to see that when we feed sin in our life, when we feed temptation, that it brings destruction. First, we must deal with our heart positively. God is glorious. Negatively, to remind our hearts of sin's destruction. But we must also deal with our hands and our feet and our eyes. That matters. First, we must deal with our heart. Then we must deal with our actions. What we say yes to matters. What we say no to matters. The patterns of our life actually matter. The rhythms of our life. You know this. Psychology tells us this. What we eat, whether we sleepy are sleeping or not, whether we're, what's our stress level? Like the patterns literally actually count and matter. So where we're going with our hands, what we're doing with our mind, where we're literally taking ourselves with our body and seeing and observing and taking in actually matters. So Jesus says, it's better to cut off your hand. And he says, it's better to cut off your foot and gouge out your eye. And we've just said that that's not what he's calling us to. We, it would literally be against God's will to do that. But it most certainly means this, I promise you. It means, are you willing to cut out things in your life that would take you away from the trajectory of life that would have you build your life around him? And so hear me, do not maim your body, but it absolutely means this. 
there are certain things in your life to be removed. There are relationships that need to be cut off at times. Not, certainly not always. There are things in your life, ideas in your life, places in your life, literal physical places that you should no longer go. There are people in relationships that literally need to be cut off for you to build your life around God's glory. And so I just want to ask you, and, and this is for your own heart, like, what's coming to mind? Chances are good. There's something in your mind that's saying, this is destructive. I know this needs to go. I know this relationship needs to end. I know this thing in my life, this pattern, this addiction, whatever it is, like this needs to cease. What is it? Jesus says it's better to cut off your hand. He doesn't want us to do that literally, but what are we to remove? What should we say no to in order to follow him? When I was a pastor in Cincinnati, uh, we moved to Cincinnati when I was a young man. Uh, I transferred there, and we were pregnant with our, our first son, Jacob. He's 22 now. And we moved there, and we had three boys in Cincinnati. We were there for six years. I was an associate pastor in a church plant. It was, it was great. It was a beautiful community of people. We were there during that time for six years. And in our neighborhood, just near Kings Island, if you're familiar with the Cincinnati area, uh, we were living there, and right down the street was another family in our church, um, the Barbers. And we lived in sort of the, the starter home neighborhood. They're older. They lived in a much more established neighborhood right down the street, and they loved on us, man. They, they would have us over for meals. They encouraged us. They poured their lives into us to help us, and they had these four kids. Two of them were in my youth ministry as I pastored that church throughout my entire time there. And one of their sons' name was Ryan, their oldest. Ryan, huge part of my youth ministry. Ryan, incredibly active, incredibly athletic, incredibly uh, big personality, and would say things like when he was 17, 18, like this. Like, the day I turn 18, I'm going to go skydiving, man. No one will stop me. And he would say this like 15 or 16. I'm like, yeah, but will you really? <laughs> yeah, he did. Week of it, he turns 18, he's skydiving. Then later, he starts to say crazy stuff. I'd follow up with him when he was in college. Like, How are you doing? Good. You know, I'm planning, as soon as I graduate from college, I'm going to walk across the United States. Like, is that a metaphor? <laughs> you know, no, he meant it. I am going to walk. I'm going to start at Sea Island, Georgia, where they lived at the time, and I'm going to walk to California. So when he graduated from college, <laughs> which he did, he went to Sea Island, Georgia, threw a party, said goodbye to his friends and family, and he began to walk across the United States. Now, he made it to Georgia, all the way through Georgia, to into Tennessee, and then he quit. Now, you may say, I can't believe it. He didn't do it, but you haven't tried that. I mean, you haven't walked across Georgia, so don't judge. And, and then, so he did these amazing things. Then his family moves to Arizona, and, and he has moved to Arizona. And to our uh, last, last Christmas... Um, he was visiting family, his parents who live in Prescott, uh, and after their day of being together, he got on his motorcycle, fully geared up, helmet, full armor, and was heading home, and an, a young man driving a sports car who was drunk and high hit him so hard that he was thrown 40 feet through the air and uh, was crushed. 
Becky and I went to go see him the day after the accident, the day after Christmas, to, to be with him, to pray with him, to hear what's going on. And his life was in jeopardy, uh, but, but looking good that he would live. But one of his legs uh, was not looking good. It was dying, and he knew immediately, like, this is, I'm not going to probably be able to keep the leg. But the doctors, for some reason, kept doing everything they could to save the leg. But he kept saying, I want you to cut it off, like, from the beginning. Uh, they, and, but they kept saying, no, we're going to try this, we're going to try this. And he would tell his parents, I want you to tell the doctors, remove the leg, cut it off. I want it off. I, I can't deal with this. Why? He's literally the most active person I knew. He moved to L.A. so he could work out at Muscle Beach every day. He has literally become an acrobat. Not, again, not figuratively. He, he does this on the flying trapeze. He literally is one of those people. He, this is what he does. So he's doing everything he can to get back to his life. And he's saying, this is dead. It's dead to me. Immediately, cut it off. And they did. And he's back to the flying trapeze in total activity with one leg. And I think this is a great story. You know where I'm going with this, right? I mean, it was not his choice that he would be maimed and be this accident, but he wanted life so badly. He wanted to be active so badly. I would rather lose my leg than to go forward being hampered like this. What do you need to remove to have life? Chances are good. You know the answer to that question. Are you brave enough to share that with somebody in your community? A pastor, a friend, a small group leader, someone you can trust. You don't share this with everybody. What needs to be removed? When we fall into temptation, we're believing the lie, this is true of every one of us, that whatever is tempting us is better than God and better than what he's offering us. And many of our temptations are pointing us to love in all of the wrong places, intimacy in all of the wrong places, acceptance in all the wrong places. And we try to medicate our heart. We're tired. We're stressed. We're burned out. We're anxious. And sin comes along and says, I will just taste so good. And it feels like relief for a moment, but it's death. Only the gospel, only Christ is big enough, only Jesus is big enough to handle what is weighing you. Only Christ can be big enough for you to handle the thing to truly be a medication and a balm to you. In your stress, in your anger, in your depression, in your anxiety, he alone is big enough. And you'll never know a greater love than this. Jesus literally went through hell so that we will never go through hell. And you say, like, in the Apostles' Creed, we say, he descended into hell. You may remember that phrase, and people have argued with me. Why do we say the Apostles' Creed? Because it says he descended into hell. And honestly, the Bible does not paint a picture that that literally happened. And so it's debatable as to whether that actually happened or not. But I know this is true. Jesus on the cross experienced hell for you. If Tim Keller is right, and hell is the separation from the presence of the, the glorious face of God, 
in his visage, looking down upon us and loving us and fellowshipping with us. If life, if the kingdom of God and eternal life is all about living in relation with God and being close to him and having intimacy with him, and hell would be separation from him, then Jesus went through hell because on the cross, the one, the one human who has always enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Father for all of his life was now cut off from that fellowship. And the Father turns his face away from Christ in that moment on the cross and not only removes his presence, but pours his anger and judgment that he has on all of our sin, all of us. The world's, the world's rebellion against him is poured out on Christ in that moment. So Jesus has known the fellowship of the Father. Now that's removed. And in addition, he's receiving all of the anger that we should receive why and i promise you this is why and this is true of anyone who hopes in jesus christ so that that will never fall on you never the good news of the gospel is so good in light of how horrible the bad news of the reality is of the human condition that we deserve this and yet it fell on christ so that it may never fall on you friend that is what's true of you in Christ, that is what's true of you, and you're a child of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your son and his faithfulness. The only, the only person who's ever lived in such a way that would deserve to see your smile and yet received your frown and your anger on our behalf so that we would now, and may we hear this in the most profound places of our life, so that in light of Jesus, we are the recipients of your glorious face, that we will see you face to face, that we will be known by you fully and loved, known by you fully and accepted, forgiven, adopted, Father, forgive us for all the ways in which we run to other people, places, and things looking to be full when you offer us this fullness. May we drink deeply this morning from the fullness of your cup. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.